It's not like any other podcast. Coming to you straight from Eastern Iowa, where apartment ownership and investing is told like it is. It's time for Darren Garman's Apartment Specialist Podcast. Hold on, because here comes the next episode of the Apartment Specialist Podcast. Okay, I think you bring up a really good point about negotiating. And I want to tell you, and I think it's going to be useful and I noticed this actually just yesterday. I think this is going to be useful not only for, uh, I mean, for you guys, uh, but for the folks on video and listening on audio about some multifamily negotiation mistakes uh, I've been seeing people make. And it's, it's costing them a lot of money. And in some cases, probably even millions of dollars it's costing them. And so let's talk about what a couple of these mistakes are especially in a hot market, these are some mistakes that I'm seeing. And it's definitely some things you want to avoid. And not only is what I'm going to share with you today on these mistakes, uh, not only is it uh, applicable in a hot market like we've got today, a hot multifamily market like we've got right now, uh, but really in most any market, but especially especially in a hot multi-family market, okay? So let's start with the first one. The first one is making the mistake of telling everybody that you're looking to complete a tax-deferred exchange or a 1031 exchange. So you're out to buy something as a replacement property for a 1031 exchange. That's a real bad idea. Let me tell you why. Because what you're communicating to people is you're willing to overpay to get your exchange done. You're willing to really pay, and I know not everybody's going to be like this, but just follow me on this. You're going to pay whatever it takes in order to get your tax deferred exchange done. Okay? So the big mistake I see is people are blabbing this out and telling everybody, yeah. I'm out looking to buy something I need to complete an exchange. Well, you may as well say it this way. I'm looking to buy something and pay whatever the hell I need to in order to get this to work. That's pretty much the other way of communicating this. And this is costing so many people so much money at the closing table that they could be putting in their pocket or in their partner's pockets. Let me give you a real example. And this is one that we just dealt with. We actually just closed on this today. We dealt with this property on the brokerage end of our business, okay? So this was a 12-unit building, okay? Um, had an asking price on it, etc. So the buyer's agent contacts me and says, yeah, I've got a buyer. He's interested in the property and wants to do what? He needs to do an exchange. Well, now I already know that my guy, the seller, remember this is on the brokerage end of our business, okay? Now I already know that the seller has a lot of um, negotiating power and negotiating room, doesn't he? because this guy's basically said he needs to buy something, okay? So, um, at the end of the day, 
the seller ended up getting, I would say in this particular instance, twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars more at the closing table. Again, this is the seller that our company is representing. We're not representing the buyer here. By sticking to his guns, not having hardly any flexibility in pricing, in selling, because of what we knew. Okay, now let me tell you how this would have gone down if we didn't know that. If we didn't know that, the seller wouldn't be walking away with twenty-five to $30,000 more at the closing table. The seller would have probably negotiated more, probably would have, you know, uh, maybe been a little bit more on price, maybe on maybe some of the repairs and things that needed to be done. I guarantee that there would have been more flexibility. But the first thing I told the seller, I'm talking to my folks here, I basically said, hey, you really don't need to be that flexible because they've got to buy something. Now, they could have your property in mind as well as two or three others. But if they want to inspect, they want to do due diligence, it's pretty much down to yours. So they ended up getting, you know, 30, probably 25, at least $25,000 more at the closing table by us advising them that the buyer has to buy their property because they're completing an exchange. If we wouldn't have known that, I bet you the seller would have walked away with easily $20,000 less in their pocket. Now, I just gave you an example of a 12-unit building, okay? But think about this with 120 units, 220 units. Now we're talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars more, okay? Another example, we looked at buying uh, another apartment community here locally, and it was 60 some units. It was like 60 units. And uh, it was a property that we liked, so we decided to offer a pretty healthy price for it. Now, again, we're not telling anybody we need to do an exchange, okay? We're willing to pay a healthy price for it. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't get that property, somebody else did. They paid almost 15 to 20% more than any price that I would have ever, ever been willing to pay. I would have ever recommended to any of our partners that they participate with us in buying. There's no way. But why did the seller get 20% more from another offer versus our offer? Is it because we're cheap? No. Is it because we're too careful? No. Is it because our underwriting is real conservative? No. It's because the other party told the sellers, blabbed everybody, hey, we need to do an exchange. So you're negotiating with me and you're negotiating with exchange guy. Who's going to pay you more? Exchange guy. Because they're telling you, oh, again, it's pretty much code for, yeah, we're pretty much willing to pay whatever we need to pay to buy something. Look, you can't do this. So if you're in a position where you really are looking at, you're in a position where you have to buy something. Maybe it's a tax deferred exchange. Maybe you've got some capital you need to get invested. Maybe there's a time debt. Maybe there's some things going on. The worst thing you can do is tell people about it. You keep it locked up, okay? You keep it between you, your partners, you, maybe if you're working with a broker to help you, it doesn't go any further than that. 
but I see this mistake made over and over and over again, and it's costing people, in some cases, millions of dollars. So you don't want to tell people what you're up to. You're looking to invest, you're looking to buy, you're looking to add your portfolio, you're looking for that next acquisition. This property meets your criteria, you'd like to own it. That's about it. It shouldn't go any further than that. And this is whether it's like four units or 400 units. Am I making sense here? I see this a lot. And uh, it's a mistake that could, that could easily be avoided by just really keeping things quiet and making sure your communication comes through a different way. So that's number one. Number two, which is kind of related to number one, is I'm hearing way too much we had to win the deal. We wanted to win the deal. We wanted to win the deal. What the hell does that have to do with making money, making great returns on your investment now and into the future? Nothing. Think about the, think of it this way. If you truly win the deal and you pay whatever you need to pay to win the deal, is that a really good financial position to be in to make a good financial decision? Think of it this way. So let's think about let's think about Warren Buffett for a second. Okay, pretty respected guy, probably the most famous investor there is. Um, do you think Warren Buffett and his guys, his folks, are sitting back thinking about how they can win the deal? No, they're not. They're not. But I'm hearing way too much from people telling me that they're looking to either A, win a deal, or they had to win the deal. By the way, as a side note, nice job by the brokers and the companies and the owners that are selling this because the buyers are drinking it down fast and furious, man. They are, because it's working. It's working, and it's working great. So good for the sellers, good for the brokers, and those that are profiting from these sales, from these purchases. Because it's not the buyers if they're going in and winning the deal. If you're winning the deal, how much realistic upside do you have in what you're buying. Sure, at the end of the day, you've bought the property, you've now invested the money, you've collected your fees, you now own it, you're now going to start working on it, but now what? Now what? Now you've won the deal, but now what? What's next? Well, of course there's plans and processes for purchasing these properties. But now in most cases, if you're just winning the deal, you are so overboard in where you really thought you would be. Now you're not really being strategic. Now you're scrambling. You're in scramble mode to see about making this work like you thought. Okay. So number two, you got to remove the win the deal attitude. And, and look, I know that there's probably some exceptions where you won the deal and it worked out great. 
I'm sure there are some of those. And I'm not here to say that there's none and they don't exist. Of course not. But we all know, if you're just focused on getting that next deal, winning that next deal, you'll start maneuvering and manipulating things in order to justify it working out the way that you want just so you can win the deal. Does that make sense? The numbers start to turn. Your projections start to become better, easier to obtain. Uh, maybe instead of that 3% rent increase, let's, let's go for a 13% rent increase. We can get that uh, because we want to make this work at the price in order to what? Win the deal. We're, we thought we would maybe be able to cut some of those expenses, maybe 11%, 9% to 11%. Let's go ahead and let's factor 15% in because we want to win the deal. Am I making sense here? And this is making a lot of sense to those that are watching or listening involved in multifamily that are active. You're either landlording, running, or managing. You're managing partnerships. You're managing funds. You're asset managing. This is making a lot of sense. But if you are a partner, let's say you are an investor, but you are um, passive, you better be having some, at least some conversations about this with the people that are responsible for you. Okay, this better be some kind of conversation in making sure that you're not involved in something where they're just concerned about winning the deal. I have seen in the last five years, I've seen four properties that were bought for 10 to 15% more than what they sold for three to four years later. And I'm talking tens of millions of dollars. Why? Because they were focused on winning the damn deal. Don't win the deal. Okay, that's not what it's about. It's about strategy. It's about economics. It's about realistic predictability. It's about making sure that you're really measuring and accurately measuring your talents in order to get that property from where it is to where it needs to be. It's not about changing all of your all of your metrics in order for it to hopefully work. That's not what it's about, but that's what I'm seeing a lot of, a lot of that. All right, let's go into number three, and I've seen way too much of this, uh, but it's happening, um, and it's happening more than it should. It has to do with financing. So more and more decisions on the ultimate purchase price being paid for multifamily properties is based on what kind of financing package you can get and working on and having that as the foundation for how much you should pay versus looking at the real economics of rents, expenses, net operating income, marketplace ability to improve the net operating income. That's the, that, that, that's the economic package in a nutshell. It's not, well, let's base our price based on how much we can borrow and how low our interest rate can be. And let's actually pay even more if we can get interest-only financing. Let's do that. Oh, yeah, and maybe we can pay $10 million more if the interest rate can be 2% instead of 3%. Oh, zero interest? Let's pay $20 million more. So that's like saying um, you're going to pay in chunks of 5 to $10 million more for a property that has the same economics that aren't changing based on what you can borrow money at. That's another way of saying it. 
Okay, so right now as I'm recording this, I mean, interest rates are probably three and a half percent, roughly. So if you're willing to pay, let's just say five million dollars for that property at three and a half million, really what you're saying is, um, excuse me, five million dollars for that property at a three and a half percent interest rate that you can borrow at. You're really saying that you'll pay seven million dollars for it if you can get interest at two percent. And maybe if you can get interest at 1%, you'll pay $8 million for it. The economics haven't changed for the property. But because you can borrow less, at less interest, you're willing to pay more. Does that not sound stupid to you? So you're basing ultimately what you're going to pay on how much you can borrow and at what interest rate you can borrow. So if you can borrow at interest only, are you telling me you're going to pay half a million dollars more with the same economics that the property kicks out? Because your interest rate you're going to pay is not going to pay how good you're going to be at owning and managing it. But you're willing to pay more because the rate's lower. Doesn't make sense. And yeah, part of how much you're willing to pay is based on your borrowing cost, sure. Because if it's the other way around, if rates weren't at 3.5%, let's say they're at 9.5%, you're not going to pay the same price with a 9.5% interest rate than you are a 3.5% interest rate, right? But the economics can't change from the economics of the property to the economics of the debt and the interest you pay. That's dangerous. Because what do you think interest rates will do eventually? They're going to go up. So think of it this way. Let's say you're part of a partnership right now or a syndication that is going to purchase a property, finance 80% of it at a 3.5% interest rate today. Okay? Uh, and let's say you lock that in for five years. All right? Now, what if five years down the road rates are 7.5%? What are you going to do? How much more? How much is that property worth now? Not as much. Now your debt service is double, right? Well, let's say, well, but Darren, I'll lock into a 10-year rate. I'll lock into a 15-year rate or a 10-year rate. So I can borrow 3.5% for 10 years. Now I got nothing to worry about. We're going to pay, we're going to pay a lot for this property, knowing our debt is locked in for 10 years. Kind of makes sense. Right? Because your debt's locked in. So even though interest rates can go up, you're locked into that debt. But what if you decide you want to sell or you have to sell sometime between, sometime during that 10 years? So look, rates are going to change. And you cannot base how much you're willing to pay and how much you're willing, really, in our case that we're talking about here, to overpay based on what interest rates are doing and how much you can borrow. It's dangerous. A lot of risk there and a lot of risk you can avoid. Here's the last thing, number four. And this is one that's not really talked about much, but it's going on big time right now. I see it myself because I get, I don't know, four or five calls or emails a week from people asking me what I'm going to say is a really big mistake a lot of people are making. And here it is. You're investing money and paying more for properties than you should be because there's pressure on you to get money in the market.
I'll say it again. You're paying more for property and you're investing more in these properties in terms of purchase price that you're paying more than you should because there's tremendous amount of pressure to get money into the market and into properties right now. So I get probably five or six calls, emails a week from partners, um, hope to be partners of mine, wanting to get involved in something with me, basically saying, hey, Darren, I've been waiting for two months. I Come on, let's go. I got money waiting. I want to get it into something. Let's go. Come on. And they're not necessarily saying it that way, but kind of, kind of. And so when you have a tremendous amount of pressure on you to get money into the market, maybe yourself, you know, my money's been sitting in this money market account. It's at like 0.03%. I got to get it into something. I got to get into something. There's that kind of pressure. Then there's the kind of pressure on uh, guys like me that oversee partnerships, that manage partnerships and syndications, that um, are responsible for hundreds of investors. When they're saying, hey, Darren, come on, I got to get my money in the market here. Let's go. Let's go. Well, the worst thing I can do is, oh, okay, all right, um, well, we're going to buy something. We're going to overpay. Oh, whew. now we've got their money in the market. Oh, man, man, that's a that's a weight off my shoulders. Well, that's the worst freaking approach you can take. You can't do that. Again, you're buying for the wrong reasons. And you're paying the prices you shouldn't be paying for the wrong reasons. So that's really the summary of what I wanted to cover, which gets back to your question. It's really mistakes that I'm seeing in the market right now from well-meaning multifamily investors that are making decisions not on the financial viability of the property so much anymore. They're making decisions to, because of pressure to invest, pressure to put money into the market because of interest rate movement, because of um, uh, tax deferred exchanges, because of um, reasons like that, which have really a little, but not as much to do with the economic viabilities of the communities that they're looking at purchasing what they can realistically do with them and to them, and how things will realistically and ultimately work out if they follow their tried and true process and planning, instead of making all of these mistakes and all of these changes in order to overpay in the hopes of getting something to work. Am I making sense here? Okay, so what can you do? as an investor, as an owner. Um, just simply think about this. Think about your approach and your methodology to owning multifamily, whether you're active or passive. And, you know, be aware. It's really all about awareness and feedback. So be aware of whether or not you're having these kinds of decisions. You're making these kinds of decisions. Are they based on solid economic data of the property, what you can do, how you can really realistically do it, or are you out there kind of being loose and making decisions on, we're doing an exchange, we want to win the deal, um, 
I've got some pressure on me to get money in, or I got pressure on me to get money in the market, or interest rates, boy, they're low right now, we can pay more because they're low. Um, let's pay a little bit more, a little bit more because they're low, and we got interest only for a while. Look, all of those things are important, and they're important parts of any kind of deal. They are, but they cannot be the foundation for purchasing and owning multifamily. Because if those are your foundations, you and I will be having some conversations in the future about how much less I'm going to pay you for your apartment community versus what you bought it for. That's what's gonna happen. All right, making sense? All right, good. Thanks for joining the Apartment Specialist Podcast. For investment questions, comments, or to get in touch with Darren, go to www.heartlandinvestmentrealestate.com.